So assuming by now, at this stage of the conference, that we agree in principle that we are to receive Christ's testimony, as I spoke about on Sunday morning. And assuming that we agree in principle that a biblical church is to preach the Word, which I spoke about yesterday, which aspects of Christ's testimony are we to receive? And which aspects of the Word are we to preach? The simple and obvious answer is all of them. We are to receive every aspect of Christ's testimony. We should preach every aspect, every bit, every section of God's Word. We should omit nothing. Our brother, Pastor Henry, will speak after me on the centrality of the Gospel in the life of a biblical church. The centrality. His message will be about proportion. Some things are more central, in that sense more important than other things. They need to be given primacy and centrality. His message will be about centrality and proportion. My message is not about proportion, but breadth. Though some things are more central, and in some sense more important in the Scripture, it doesn't follow from that that anything in the Scripture is therefore unimportant. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's a correct inference from that truth. If all Scripture is God-breathed, it's a correct inference to say, then we should preach all of it. But it's not only a correct inference from that truth that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Receiving all of it and preaching all of it is also Paul's methodology. Look at Acts chapter 20 with me. I'm going to read from verses 17 to 38. Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders as he's departing from them. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all, these, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now notice, Paul sums up his message in verse 21, as testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's his summary of his ministry. It's reminiscent of other passages where he says, we preach Christ crucified. He's able to sum up accurately, my main message is repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 24, he's able to sum up his message as saying, it's the testimony of the gospel of the grace of God. Again, this is an accurate summary of his ministry. That's the dominant note. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel of the grace of God. He's able to say that some things were more central than others. Some things were primary. But notice that he repeated a couple of times that he omitted Nothing in his ministry to the Ephesians. Notice in here that he says twice that he preached everything. Obviously that was an important feature of his ministry that he wished to emphasize. Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and if it was Paul's methodology to declare the whole counsel of God, then shouldn't it be ours also? That's the implication of Paul's summary of his own ministry 
among the Ephesians. The implication is that the Ephesian elders to whom, to whom he is speaking should go on to minister in the same way as he did even after his departure. That's the thrust of this whole passage. He's not telling them to boast or to brag or just for their interest's sake. Telling them how he passed the last couple of years. He's telling them so that they may emulate him. Obviously, he wishes that when he leaves, the Ephesian elders likewise do not shrink from declaring anything that's profitable. He obviously wishes that after his departure, the Ephesian elders do not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. You might say at this point, of course, of course, this is so obvious. Just like yesterday, a biblical church is biblical. It's so obvious. And in in some sense it is. It really is so obvious. But there are at least three particular areas in which we need to be especially careful not to be neglectful in our day and age. So so there's there's the exegesis of this. It's very basic. Preach the whole counsel of God. We move to application. Well, what, what, what does that mean for us? If we agree in principle, okay, let's do it. Let's receive all of Christ's testimony. And let's preach all of it. What will that look like for us? What pitfalls must we avoid as we walk in obedience to this injunction? I have three this morning. The first danger that we need to avoid, the first pitfall that we need to avoid as we endeavor to preach the whole counsel of God is the danger of underemphasizing either the Old Testament or the New. Many have gone wrong here. There was Marcion, the heretic, of course, who denied the identification of the New Testament God with the Old Testament God, and thus did away with the Old Testament. And what goes around comes around. Some of you may know of Andy Stanley of North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He recently argued, and I quote, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. End quote. Some of you may know Andy Stanley's father, Charles Stanley. This man has a large platform. Until very recently, no one would consider him reformed, but I think until the last few years, most would have considered him evangelical. But this is a significant departure. Unhitching from the Jewish scriptures? Unhitching from the Old Testament? Then there are less extreme forms of this neglect of the Old Testament. And listen here, even in conservative, Bible-believing, Calvinistic circles, like John MacArthur. On the Grace to You website, there are sermons stretching all the way back to 1969. I didn't count how many sermons there were on the New Testament. I clicked on sermons by book Matthew, and there's 295 from the Gospel of Matthew alone. Similarly, you find large numbers as you, as you click on Mark, Luke, John. I didn't take the time to go through all 27 books and tally it up. 
But you get the idea. If there were 295 sermons on the book of Matthew alone, there's a lot on the New Testament. By contrast, stretching all the way back to 1969, there are only 183 sermons on the Grace to You website from Old Testament texts. Any. Genesis to Malachi. John MacArthur has preached on the Gospel of Matthew more than he's preached on the Old Testament in the last 50 years. Unless by some stroke of fortune, and let's be fair, unless by some stroke of fortune, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds were lost in the Grace to You archives. To put that in contrast, not only with not only with his own preaching, but even in our brand new church plan, which started in 2017, we've had 84 sermons from the Old Testament in two years, less than two years, compared to 183 over 50 years. Brothers and sisters, it is an actual danger, even among otherwise solid men. I respect John MacArthur. I quoted him very favorably yesterday. No one, no one would doubt that he's a Bible guy. But I think the elephant in the room is that there's a problem there. In terms of functionally. Remember we talked about yesterday, the difference between theory and practice. Functionally. John MacArthur would never say that the Old Testament is peripheral or anything like that. But functionally, that's a problem. Obviously, you know that our church holds to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And thus, covenant theology, the historic kind, as opposed to dispensationalism or what some are calling New Covenant Theology. Or progressive covenantalism. And of course, covenant theologians tend to see more continuity in the overall storyline of Scripture than our dispensational brethren or our brethren in New Covenant theology, progressive covenantal circles. So we're a little more comfortable with the Old Testament. Some might argue a little too comfortable with the Old Testament. We need to reckon more with the newness. And I'll come to that in a moment. But let me suggest that if your overall framework for understanding the Bible, the meta narrative of the Bible, the big picture, the storyline of Scripture, if your overall framework leads you to neglect that portion of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, such that you're preaching almost exclusively, like John MacArthur, on the portion of scripture that accounts for only about 25%. You should rethink your meta narrative. You should rethink your understanding of the big picture of the Bible. If all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable, your understanding of the meta narrative of scripture should fit functionally and not just theoretically within the that paradigm. Now to the neglect of the New Testament. This can also be a real problem. 
Of course, the Seventh-day Adventists go wrong here, bringing across ceremonial laws into modern-day applicability to the believer. As Pastor Jonah stated yesterday, we aren't the nation-state of Israel brought out of slavery in Egypt and put under the Old Covenant. So we shouldn't read the Old Testament as if we are. We need to let New Testament light shine back upon the Old Testament, guiding us in our understanding and application of it. But it's not just the Seventh-day Adventists who make this error. Again, in conservative Bible-believing circles, this can be an error. Of course, we know that we have good brothers among the Pado-Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Dutch Reformed. Even, again, as Pastor Jonas alluded to yesterday, this Presbyterian brother with whom he has so much in common. But our Reformed Pado-Baptist brethren go wrong in neglecting the New Testament in their practice of baptizing their children before they believe. They do this because under the Old Covenant, the children of those who are in covenant with God were included. And it's a good and necessary consequence, they believe, from the Old Testament that children under the New Covenant receive the covenant sign. But the New Testament teaches us to the contrary. Believe and be baptized. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So our Reformed Pado-Baptist brethren go wrong here too, with the neglect of the New Testament. So whether the Seventh-day Adventist sort, which is a huge error, or the Reformed Pado-Baptist sort, which is a lesser error, these are real errors. Neglecting clear New Testament teaching in favor of supposed implications drawn from the Old Testament. However, though there are real errors, I do think that largely the perceived danger of neglecting the New Testament is largely a boogeyman in our current context as Calvinistic Baptists in the 21st century Western scene and Caribbean scene. People are so quick to reject a chapter and a verse from the Old Testament simply on the grounds that it is from the Old Testament. Anyone, anytime one begins quoting from the Old Testament, and especially when talking about the Ten Commandments, one hears very quickly simplistic rejoinders like, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Or, we don't go to Sinai, we go to Calvary. Or, do you also refrain from eating shellfish and wearing clothes mixed of two fabrics? Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament isn't the problem. Faulty interpretation of the Old Testament is the problem. So we need to do better than just reject an argument out of hand because someone's quoting the Old Testament. Because someone's teaching you something drawn from the Old Testament. If it's wrong, we need to go deeper 
than just rejecting it because it's the Old Testament. We shouldn't drop the Old Testament on the basis that some interpret it poorly. Any more than we should drop the New Testament on the basis that some interpret it poorly. And I know here, I know that no one here is going to disagree with me in theory. We're all on the same page in theory. But as I was preaching yesterday, there is a difference between something being true merely in theory and something being true practically or functionally. Functionally, we need to be careful not to neglect either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Is the Old Testament given its due place alongside the New in the teaching and preaching ministry of the church? Is the New allowed to shine back on the Old and inform it so that we understand the Old properly? Let's make sure that we neglect neither Old Testament nor New Testament, but preach the whole counsel of God. Another area where we need to be intentional not to neglect one aspect or another is when considering law and gospel. On the one hand, there's danger of law without gospel. And this is bare moralism. And there's a heretical degree of this error, as in many mainline churches today, which basically teach that we should try to be good people and that God will accept us if we're sincere enough and if we try hard enough. We, we know that that's heresy. That is not the gospel. Try harder, do better, and if you're successful enough, God will accept you. Be a good person, that's what it means to be a Christian. Heresy. Law without gospel. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we need to be wearing the pure white woolen garment of our spotless lamb or we can never be clothed aright. But there's a softer form of this error. Functional moralism. Even in churches where the gospel is still believed and preached from time to time. Gradually, churches can slip into this softer form of moralism by just assuming the gospel and moving past it. Exemplary preaching has its place. We read in Corinthians that these things took place as examples to us. But merely giving examples of good and bad people in Scripture is not gospel preaching. Be like Joseph, be like David, be like Daniel. If you only do this, or if you most often do this, you're neglecting the gospel in favor of the law. We must, pre- we must preach Christ and His finished work. As many have said before me, the law says do. The gospel says done. Our preaching shouldn't free people altogether from the obligations of the law. We still ought to obey God's law. And in that sense, we, we preach do. And more on that in a moment. But our preaching ought not to sound like this. 
do, 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 done, do, do, done, do, 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 done. You get the point? You can actually believe the gospel. You can have a converted minister who knows Christ Jesus and loves Jesus and is a Christian who just functionally assumes the gospel. Leans heavily on exemplary preaching from characters in the Old Testament. Leans heavily upon the imperatives in the New Testament. In disproportion to preaching Christ and His finished work. Don't functionally neglect the gospel by assuming it and moving past it in the bulk of your church's preaching ministry. Preach the gospel alongside the moral exhortations of Scripture. Stir up our love, preachers, for our Savior as you tell us about Him. Because not only is that old, old story sweeter each time you tell it, But that old, old story sounds, each time we hear it, more wonderfully sweet. It's possible even functionally, it's possible functionally, even within Orthodox theology overall, to neglect the gospel in the ministry of the Word. And it's a danger to avoid. It's possible also in our effort to focus properly on the gospel, That we neglect God's law. We may rightly perceive that we ought to be gospel-centered. That our preaching ought to be done, done, done. Christ has paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And that ought to be a driving emphasis of our ministry. We might rightly perceive that. And so we try to change our ways. Away from this functional, law-focused preaching. But we end up falling off the other side of the horse. Martin Luther said that we are like drunk men, always falling off one side of the horse or the other, as Christians. In our effort to become gospel-centered, we become gospel-only. We focus so much on talk of grace, justification, election, monergism, God's work for us, that we underemphasize God's law. God's law was given to show us our need of Christ in the first place. It convicts us as sinners so that we can no longer say all of these things I have kept since my youth. But we realize, oh wretched man that I am, all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. And so the unbelievers among us must hear God's law being preached hard in order to understand properly the extent of their sinfulness and their hopelessness outside of Christ Jesus. Then the law continues to serve a purpose in the life of the believer. It continually reminds us of our sin and our our dependence upon Christ, but more than that, we are set free from the law as a covenant. We are not under the law as a covenant, but we are under grace covenantally that's what not under law but under grace means let me explain that we no longer have the law hanging over our heads saying do this and live 
That's what a law covenant looks like. And Christ has freed us from that pressure of do this and live by doing everything for us that was needful for us to live. And so in that sense, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. But that doesn't mean that we're free from the law, not under the law, with respect to moral expectations that are still binding on our lives. You can't just go commit adultery, for example. Say, well, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. You can't just covet and say, I'm glad to live in the freedom of the new covenant. Because now I can covet all I want. Because Christ has set me free from the law. Oh, now I can have other gods before Him. Because I'm not under the law, but under grace. God's law must be preached to help the believer know his duty toward God. Not so that he will live by the keeping of the law, that's legalism. But rather, having been made alive in Christ, out of thankfulness for Christ Jesus, out of a sense of gratitude, and yes, even duty toward God, we ought to. With the enabling of the Holy Spirit and the new nature which has been given the believer in regeneration. The believer ought now to and can with God's help do the good works which God prepared beforehand for him to do. Ephesians 2.10 He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son who was a law keeper for us. So we need to keep preaching God's law as instructions for a believer to live a life pleasing to God. So no no law without gospel. No law without gospel. May we resolve? No law without gospel. But no gospel without law. Just understand them in their respective functions and their relationship to one another. Rightly divide the word of truth in this matter. But preach it all. Lastly, a third area in which we have to be careful not to be neglectful is in the area of difficult passages. It's all too easy to avoid confusing parts of the Bible, unpleasant or controversial parts of the Bible. Also, let's be honest, genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And other parts that just might not be our favorite for whatever reason. As preachers, it would be easy for us to neglect these parts. But if we're to declare the whole counsel of God, we need to preach these parts too. I know that some would disagree with me. Among those are Charles Spurgeon and even our own Pastor Jonas. Two preachers much better than I am. And so I offer this respectfully and cautiously. But I would like to suggest that one way to remedy 
this particular issue of neglecting difficult passages, uncomfortable passages, unpleasant passages, is to preach through whole books of the Bible consecutively. I know that's not the practice of all, and it's not a rule. I'm not saying that it's wrong to do it another way. But I am saying that I probably never would have chosen to preach on the genealogy of Esau in Genesis 36 the way that I did a few weeks ago if I had not been preaching all the way through Genesis. Or the duty of slaves to obey their masters in Ephesians 6. You may imagine that was an uncomfortable sermon for me to preach at my church here in Barbados. Or the passage in 1 Peter about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. That's a hard one to understand. Each of those I preached as I made my way through the whole book. And that practice helped me. It disciplined me as a preacher. Not to neglect certain parts, but to preach the whole counsel of God. Preachers don't have to do it that way. They're not unfaithful simply because they don't do it that way. I'm not declaring with the Protestant equivalent of papal authority that all must do it this way. But listen, it's one way to try to make sure that we preach the whole counsel of God. Whether this way or another, we do need to find a way to make sure that our ministry is characterized by a certain breadth. We should be able to say without reserve or qualification to our own congregations, to our ministerial colleagues, that we declare the whole counsel of God. That we don't shrink from anything profitable. Even as Paul didn't shrink from the whole counsel of God or shrink from anything that was profitable in his ministry to the Ephesians. I love the cross. I love the old, old story of Jesus and His love. I don't want to leave it out. I don't want to move past it. But I do want to connect it to every passage in the Bible. Every situation in life. Rather than thinking about that message in isolation. I want to pursue the sort of ministry in which Christ is the focal point. And is in a very real sense the sum and substance. Yet not in such a way that Christ is isolated from everything else in scripture or everything else in life. Not in such a way that I have to choose between should I preach on parenting or should I preach on Christ? Should I preach on workplace ethics or should I preach on Christ? I reject those sorts of choices as false dichotomies. It's not either or, but it's both and. Do it all in relation to one another. Connect things to Christ and His cross. Don't preach Christ. What I'm saying is don't preach Christ in a simplistic way. In a reductionistic way. Which means that if you're preaching Christ, there's a whole bunch of other things you're neglecting. Figure out what is the relationship between Christ and parenting. What is the relationship between Christ and workplace ethics? And so on and so forth.
I want to integrate Christ and the rest of scriptures. Christ and all of life. Christ and the whole counsel of God. May all we pastors resolve to do the same. Preach Christ. And our brother, Pastor Henry, will speak further to that imminently. But don't preach Christ at the expense of everything else. Preach Christ in relation to everything else. And in doing so, preach the whole counsel of God. And again, church members, I've been focused on the pastors again this morning, but church members, if you're in such a church where the whole counsel of God is preached, thank God. Thank God for your faithful pastors who do not shrink from declaring to you anything that is, anything that is profitable. Thank God for pastors who do not shrink from you, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And as I said yesterday, thank them, encourage them, support that kind of ministry wholeheartedly, be engaged with your church as your pastors endeavor to do their part in the church and fulfill their role in the church, their body part, right? Like an arm or a shoulder or a knee or whatever. You need to fulfill your body part in the church. Be appreciative, be thankful, be supportive, church members, of such a ministry. A biblical church is one in which the whole counsel of God is taught and preached. Amen.